0: We've come now to the last chapter in the book of Acts, chapter 28. This will be the next to last sermon in our series, the book of Acts, Spirit-Empowered Witnesses in a Sin-Empowered World. Uh, Next week or next month, Lord willing, I will preach one last summary sermon from the book of Acts before moving on to our next series. Acts chapter 28, today we'll consider the entire chapter, but we'll begin, for sake of time, by zooming into verses 11 to 14. Acts 28, beginning in verse 11. The Word of God says this. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Putioli. There, we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so, we came to Rome. Let's ask God's blessing on his word. Our God and Father... We ask now that you would pour out your Holy Spirit to convict us of our sins, to remind us of the hope we have in Christ, to instruct us in your ways and to glorify the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. I don't know about you, but years ago I muted my GPS system. So I don't know what what they're saying in the background when I arrive, but I do remember that at one point when you came to your destination, it would declare, you've arrived. You've arrived. And now after the last few months of us coming to God's word and examining the apostle paul who a few chapters ago i said i must go to jerusalem and then to rome and we have seen all the twists and the turns in him getting there we finally come to acts 28 verse 14 where it says and so we came to rome paul finally reached his destination The GPS is a very good thing to have. Um, In some ways, it's probably uh, made us a little more geographically unaware because we just plug things in and wind up going to our destination. The Lord, of course, is our ultimate guide to bring us to the destination that he has called us to be. Uh, Like the GPS, the Lord has a destination for us in mind, and wherever we deviate off of the path, that destination is always the same. Like the Lord, the GPS is in a sense transcendent in that it's based upon satellites above what's going on to help us to find the best route. And like the Lord, the GPS is precise. However, unlike the GPS, in God's plan, all the detours that you and I take on the road to our destination are not surprises. Nothing surprises God. The source of our being guided is not passive, whereas our GPS is reacting to traffic jams and closed roads, or if we take a wrong turn, God is not reacting to things that He didn't see beforehand. God is the one guiding all things by His sovereign will. And unlike the GPS, while our GPS system might be precise, it is not perfect, but the Lord is perfect. If you notice on your GPS, sometimes when you're stuck in traffic, the color of the route changes to red. I don't know about you who travel a lot, but when you see that red line, it's like, how am I going to beat this? And then when it's green, it's like, ah, okay. But the red signifies that there's a delay, an unexpected delay. And you won't get to your destination the time that you had hoped. But if the Apostle Paul had a GPS system... In all these last chapters we've read, and he thought he would be in Rome a long time ago, the color wouldn't be red. It would always be green. Because no matter where Paul ended, whether it's in prison in Caesarea, whether it's on the island of Malta, whether it's on a ship in the middle of the Mediterranean, rocking and rolling because of the storm, because the captain didn't listen to him, it was God's plan all along. And the line is always green. We can take heart then, my brothers and sisters, that the Lord knows what is best for us, because what he does for us is always in accordance with his sovereign will. For Paul, the the destination was Rome. But Rome was just a city And the reason why it was so important is because it's just one piece of the puzzle in the greater program, the cosmic program, that we had just sung about. Salvation in Jesus' name to all nations. And Rome was the most strategic city in the world at that time. For if the gospel would come to Rome, then the gospel would go to the ends of the earth. Listen to some of the prophecies... Back in the Old Testament. And I'll just read these for sake of time. Back in the book of Genesis chapter 12. All the way back to Father Abraham. The Lord said that in Abram, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There's no way that Abraham could have known at the time what that meant. Me? Little old, all the families of the earth blessed because of me? Me? Well, when God said that in Genesis 12, he wasn't limiting it just to Abraham's immediate family, nor was he limiting that to just the Jewish people. But he specifically says all the families of the earth, Jew, Gentile, Greek, Roman, everyone. The minor prophet Habakkuk says in chapter four, verse two, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It is God's will that the whole earth would know the truth. In Isaiah 49, God says that He will make Israel a light for the nations, that His salvation may reach the end of the earth. Every time the Old Testament says the phrase, the nations, it's talking about non-Jewish people. The heathens, the pagans, the Ninevites, the Jebusites those people that would even come against God's people, God had in mind for all nations salvation. And you and I get to be a part of that. In Psalm 2, the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Psalm 67, verse 5, the psalmist declares, Let the people praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. And then in the New Testament, Jesus said, This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Have you ever thought how amazing it is that we sit here 2,000 years later in North Arlington, New Jersey, proclaiming glory to a Jewish carpenter who died on a cross and three days later rose again? Why is that? Because God has orchestrated all of history to bring the gospel to every creature. And even in this very room right now, there are men and women who are made in the image of God from different backgrounds different ethnicities different places of origin and what binds us together but that marvelous truth that god is our salvation and that's why jesus said and we read this earlier in before the second song to his disciples to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature to all nations and baptize them in the father in the name of the father son And the Holy Spirit. And then if you'll turn with me to Acts chapter 1, the very beginning chapter of the the book that we're reading now. Acts chapter 1. This is where it all begins in our story as we come to a conclusion. Jesus is right before his ascension meeting with his disciples. And in verse 8 and 9 of Acts 1, he says to them... But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking up, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. That's as if Jesus said to us, you will be my witnesses in North Arlington and in Hudson County. Um, Actually, we're in Bergen County now. Bergen County and New Jersey and America and the ends of the earth. The, The power of the gospel is to go forth to every corner of this world. There is no dark corner of this world that is out of the escape of God's sovereign eye. And it is his will that as the waters cover the sea, so shall the knowledge of the Lord cover the world. In this chapter now that we're in, Acts chapter 28, it's the end of of the book of Acts, but it's not the end of the world yet. We see the mission that Jesus gave in chapter 1 being fulfilled, and it must continue to be fulfilled until he comes back. In this chapter, it's as if Paul had a GPS that said, you've arrived. But while it might be the end or towards the end of his story, it's only a new beginning For the church. Today we'll look at Acts 28. Paul comes to Rome and we'll look at it in three sections where he brings the gospel to the island of Malta, which is where we left him last week. And then he arrives in Rome, the brief stay with the brothers and sisters, and then he tells his story and preaches the gospel. This has implications for all of us. And I hope and pray that at the end of this sermon, you are inspired, encouraged, motivated, compelled to preach the gospel to every creature because that is God's mission for his church. And if you are a believer in Christ, that is your mission too. Paul comes to Rome. Just by way of reminder, chapters ago... Paul announced his intention to go to Jerusalem and to Rome. He made it to Jerusalem. We saw what happened there. He was, uh, he was um, brought out of the temple and arrested. And his intention was to go to Rome directly. But as John Stott says, circumstance after circumstance seemed calculated to make this impossible. Perhaps you can relate. Perhaps there's a goal that you've had on your calendar somewhere. And you thought you would be there... By this date, but then obstacle after obstacle after obstacle comes in your way. And so, as Paul is thinking of Rome, what happens on the way? Well, he's arrested at the temple in Jerusalem. He endures trial after trial, defending these baseless charges and false accusations. He's then imprisoned in Caesarea. He's threatened with assassination by the Jewish leaders. He goes into a boat on the way to Rome, and he's violently storm-tossed almost to death in the middle of the sea. When he finally makes it to land, the Roman soldiers almost kill him. Then we'll see he's bitten by a snake in Malta. I think Paul, we could say, had a lot of detours on the road to Rome. Well, here's one of those detours. The people of Malta experience gospel power. Look with me in verses 1 through 11. 1 through 11. Starting in verse 1. Bible says in Acts 28 verse 1, after we were brought safely through, we learned that the island was called Malta. And I'll stop after every few verses. Malta is a very small island. If you know your geography, someone had said it's kind of like if Italy looks like a boot and Sicily looks like the the soccer ball that the boot is kicking, then Malta is like a piece of dirt that's falling off of the soccer ball after being kicked. So it's this tiny little island Actually, today, there are more Maltese people in Australia than on the island of Malta itself. It's a very small island. And like I think I said last week, one commentator said, for them in this boat to find any land at all was like finding a needle in a haystack. But this is where God brought them, to the island of Malta. Malta in Greek actually means safe harbor or safe refuge. Isn't it interesting how God just kind of shows us this all along? in the midst of the storms of life, in the midst of the detours, in the midst of the unexpected challenges, God will always provide for us a refuge. This was the Lord's refuge. Verse 2. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. It's easy to skip over that verse. But this is more evidence of God's loving providence to his people. Luke makes it, makes it clear. He says, unusual kindness. Why is that unusual? Because 2,000 years ago, if a ship were to come into an island, wrecked as it were, the first thing the islanders would do would, loot, would be to loot the ship. Kill all the passengers and take their stuff. That was the common thing to do back then. But Luke says, something unusual is happening here. These native people, which he uses a word for barbarian, he doesn't mean uncivilized. He simply uses that word to mean they don't speak our language. They're native. Some of them probably knew some Greek because that was common back in those days. But these were the people that grew up in that island. And for some reason, they didn't rob us and kill us. And I think we know the reason behind that is because Paul had a destination to go. And God was going to make sure that he got there. And so they, they kindled a fire. They helped them to warm up next to the fire. But now look what happens in verses 3 to 6. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. So I don't know how the snake got into the fire. The most logical explanation is that someone was picking up sticks, and because it was cold, inside of one of those bundles was a snake, pretty pretty stiff as a board. And as soon as the, the heat melted, the snake kind of reacted against the heat and bit Paul on the hand. Now we see the Maltese people looking at this scenario and we see some of their presuppositions. Right, th- these men and women were worshippers of, of false gods, pagan gods. They, they talk here about the god of justice. Um, I'm reading from the ESV. So in verse 4, you see the word justice capitalized in your versions. It might be a little different. But that is a, a, a goddess who was known to be the daughter of Zeus and Themis, who was an avenger against people who did wrong. So in the Maltese mind, Paul was a criminal. He was shipwrecked and deserved it because he was bad, but somehow he survived the shipwreck and so now the snake is going to kill him. That's what's in their mind. And just understand this for a moment because Paul's the same one who wrote Romans 1 and 2. And in Romans 1 and 2, he talks about the fact that everyone, even native people who don't have God's law, have a conscience that God gave them. Where they understand right and wrong They understand justice and wrath But they don't quite have the whole picture So that's the presupposition That we're working with And that's why they think that Paul Must be a bad person Because bad people deserve death, right? But Jesus, remember, rebukes this kind of thinking Even his own disciples at one point When they walked down the road and they saw a blind man, they asked Jesus, why was he born blind? Was it his parents that were sinners, or is he a sinner? And what did Jesus say? He said, unless you repent, you will perish. He talked about how God will manifest his power in those people who were born disabled. In other words, it's easy for us, brothers and sisters, to think that bad fortune has come on me or my friends because they must have done something wrong, when really it's a result of a sin-cursed world. And God, if God only gave us justice, yes, we would suffer the consequences and we'd all be condemned forever. But thank God he doesn't just give justice. He also gives mercy. And Paul was there to proclaim to a people that seemed to have no concept of mercy, the mercy that comes from Christ. It's interesting, and this is just a side note, take it or leave it, but I find it interesting that it was a snake That plummeted or helped to plummet all of man into sin and into chaos. And here, a snake also tries to thwart the advance of the gospel, but under the power of Christ, who bruises the serpent's head, there is no snake that can stop the gospel's advance. So these people then see that Paul does not suffer the consequence they thought he would suffer, so they go to the radical other conclusion he must be a God. So it shows you where they're coming from, right? They don't have this all figured out. They know that there is a God, just like Romans 1 tells us. You might be here today even, not believing in God, but the Bible says that His attributes are clearly seen. Take a microscope and look at the design of the cell. Take a telescope and look at the vastness of the universe. God's power, God's attributes are clear, And every one of us knows that there is a God. But we may choose to suppress the knowledge of God in unrighteousness because we love our sin. And the Maltese people understand justice. They understand there's a God or gods, but they can't put it all together without the special revelation that comes from God's word. So when you think about Paul finding this little island as a needle in the haystack, it's not just about keeping Paul alive. This is God's mercy to this island that an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ would wind up on their shore to tell them all the things that they don't know. Look at me in verse 7 through 9 now. Now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick and f- with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when he had, this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island, who had diseases, also came and were cured. Now, I will say it's curious that in this section, Paul, or Luke, the writer of Acts, doesn't specifically mention that Paul preaches the gospel. But I don't think that means Paul did not preach the gospel. I think it's very obvious from his pattern in the book of Acts, as well as what he says about his mission in life, woe to me if I preach not the gospel, that Paul certainly preached the gospel here in Malta. But Luke wants to highlight that the way that Paul displayed the power of God was through the miracle of healing. And you may remember, all through the book of Acts, God gave his apostles a special unction from the Holy Spirit where they would perform miracles like healing. But every time those miracles were performed, they had a purpose. And the purpose of healing wasn't just to be healed, but to see the power of God so that they would believe the gospel. In other words, all throughout the book of Acts, miracles are a preparation for receiving the gospel. So we can only assume then that when Paul... Prayed over Poblius, his father and healed him. And then in verse 9, the rest of the people came and Paul healed them and healed them and healed them. That he was also preaching the gospel. Matter of fact, there's a little hint here in verse 9 um, or verse 8. It says, when Paul visited him and prayed. Well, who was Paul praying to? What was the content of his prayers? Clearly, Paul would have preached Jesus to these people. One commentator says, Paul the prisoner is still a blessing to those around him, even as he is held unjustly. Isn't that interesting? How often, in our own sinful inclinations, even as Christians, we get wronged. We are the recipients of injustice or persecution. And we get mad, right? Now, when we're mad, we're not a blessing. Because we're only thinking about ourselves Now think about Paul This man is falsely accused He's still under arrest He just wants to get to Rome He just was bitten by a snake And he's using his time in the island To be a blessing to other people You and I can be a blessing Even when it seems things are out of control so, Paul heals in Jesus' name. Miracles always point to the gospel here. Early church tradition tells us, whether true or not, that Publius became a believer and became the first bishop in the church at Malta. If that's true, that's big because it tells us that the gospel spread throughout the whole island. Now, verse 10 and 11. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Brethren, I cannot stress to you just how unusual and how amazing this is. Think about it. Just last chapter, Paul was on a grain ship, a well-protected, insured, very expensive grain ship from Alexandria on the way to Rome, and in order for them to survive, they had to throw overboard all their stuff. Remember that? So you might be thinking, where are we going to get our food? Where, where are we going to get what we need to, to make sure we get to Rome safely and, and healthy, not disease-ridden? And God's answer is Malta. His answer is this small island inhabited by unusually friendly natives who not only warm a fire for them when they get there, but look again at verse 10. They put on board whatever we needed. Now, why is that? It's because whatever the Maltese people had wasn't ultimately theirs. It's God's. Everything in this world belongs to God. Every penny in our pocket belongs to God. Every resource we have belongs to God and if God sees fit to take the resources from someone else in order to help his apostle make it to Rome to preach the gospel God is in his sovereign right to do that And in an almost ironic twist he does it by putting them on a boat another egyptian boat from alexandria that had in the in the very front of the boat two pictures two images of the twin gods It says in verse 11, the twin gods as a figurehead. These twin brothers, also sons of Zeus. They are called Castor and Pollux, known to the pagans. Get this, known to the pagans as savior gods. you see the irony in that? That means that when Paul gets to Rome, he's arriving on a ship... With these two false gods who the people believe are saviors. But the truth is, he's the one who's going to preach the true savior to the people. You can't make this stuff up. This is as if God is saying, I'm in control even of your false gods. And I will use what I will to make sure that my ends are complete. And if the end of God's will is the gospel to Rome, he'll use a pagan ship to do it. God ordains the ends and the means, and he is Lord of all. And so now we come to this. Paul arrives in Rome. After all of those twists and turns, finally, he comes to Rome. Verse 12 to 14. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Potioli. There we found brothers And we're invited to stay with them seven days. And so we came to Rome. Back in Acts 19, when the Lord put it in Paul's heart to come to Rome, I would ever wonder if Paul thought it would come this way. That the way he got to Rome was on an Alexandrian ship with pagan gods in the front chained to a roman soldier sent with a blessing from a native tribe in a tiny island called malta but here he is and that whole trip took about four months three weeks from malta and then paul made it to rome just as god said remember that just last chapter When they were storm-tossed in the violent wind, Paul received a message from an angelic visitor from God and said that he told me I must testify before Caesar. And so even though things didn't look like it would happen that way, if God ordained it, it shall come to pass. In Acts 19.21, Paul said, I must visit Rome. In Acts 23.11, the Lord says you must testify in Rome. In Acts 27.24, he says you will stand before Caesar. And so when we look at the end of verse 14, and so we came to Rome, it's just another of the many reminders that God keeps his promises. Now look at verse 15. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. So the first people that Paul meets in that area are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they encourage Paul. And just as a side note, brothers and sisters, how often we need that encouragement. There are people in this room right now, perhaps many of us, who are going through these kinds of battles where we don't know what the Lord is doing, why He's doing it, why it's taking so long. Maybe we're discouraged, we're doubting, dealing with our own sin, dealing with our own insecurities, dealing with our own lack of faith and then the things that we have to go through at home or at work whatever it might be. And of course we need the Lord most of all, but we also need each other. And that's why we come here. That's why we come here on Sundays. That's why we meet in homes. That's why we come here on Wednesdays. That's why we pray together. That's why we text one another and call one another. We need this community. Don't distance yourself from the community when you're going through a hard time. We need one another to bear each other's burdens. And I just imagine how refreshing it was. As it says in the end of verse 14, Paul thanked God and took courage because he spent time with the brothers. He spent time with the the brothers and sisters in the Lord. We come to the last section now, verse 16 to 31. What does Paul do? In Rome, he does the same thing in Rome that he's done in every city we've seen since chapter, well, the first chapter we saw Paul in 9 and 10. He testifies of his own story, and he preaches the gospel. He reminds me of Rowdy Roddy Piper, the old wrestler who would say, well, I can't tell you what he said, but it's like Paul said, I've come to do two things. Chew bubble gum and preach the gospel. And I'm all out of gum. Verse 16 to, to uh, 20 says this, And when we came to Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. <laughs> stay by himself, right? With the soldier who guarded So Paul's never really alone. He's always with a soldier making sure he's not going to run away. Verse 17, After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers... Yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. Paul says, I'm a prisoner because of the hope of Israel. Notice that. He just gave the secondary means. All right? In the secondary sense, he's a prisoner because um, he was accused by the Jews in Jerusalem. He was handed over to the Romans, and they objected to the, the freedom that he could have had. Those are the secondary means. But the primary reason he's a prisoner, he says in verse 20, the hope of Israel. The Lord, the Lord is the one who has me here. The hope of Israel is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the hope of Israel, not just for the Gentiles, but for the Jews. He's the Messiah, the long-awaited one. And because Paul has come face-to-face with Christ and received him as Lord and Savior of his life, he was willing to follow him wherever he took him. So even in these chains, Paul says, I'm here because of my faithfulness to God I'm here because of my allegiance to the God of your father He's talking to the Jews The God of your fathers The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob Has me here Because he has sent his son To be our Messiah So verse 21 And they said to him We have received no letters from Judea about you And none of the brothers coming here Has reported or spoken any evil about you But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. So Paul, he comes to Rome not having the same reputation he had in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, they were waiting for him, right? Because they were charging him with blasphemy. In Rome, the Jewish leaders of Rome say, we haven't heard anything negatively about you. But... We have heard about your sect, this Nazarene sect, this this the way, Christians. And we've heard some pretty bad things about Christians. And so, Paul, we want to hear what your views are. It's like, like an open forum. They're, they're primed to listen to what Paul would say. So, in verse 23, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers from morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. See, Paul is in his wheelhouse. This is where he wants to be. He is, he's got a captive audience who literally said to him just a few days ago, we want to hear what you have to say. So when the day comes and they bring greater numbers... Paul is in the zone from morning to evening. We know Paul has a tendency to talk a long time. And he's opening up the scriptures. And he's showing in the law that this is about Jesus. right? Even back in the Garden of Eden, the, the promised Redeemer is about Jesus. right? Abraham's seed is about Jesus. Noah's Ark points us to Jesus. David and Goliath points us to Jesus. Everything points us to the one who fulfilled all things in the Old Testament The verse 24 tells us there was a split in how that was received. Some believed, others disbelieved. We don't know what that split was. 50-50, most likely a remnant of people believed and most did not. But praise God for the sum. Praise God for every individual in that room that day that were convinced That yes, Jesus of Nazareth is the long-awaited Messiah of Israel and decided to follow him that day. But verse 25 tells us, Disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. And here Paul quotes the book of Isaiah. He says, The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, So many of the Jews, not all of them, thank God, many of them rejected the message that Paul gave. And so Paul says this is a fulfillment of Isaiah, chapter number 6, where Isaiah sees a vision of God and then he's told to go and preach. And then God tells him, by the way, they're not going to listen to you. Now, I've been a teacher for 15 years now. I know what it's like to be in a classroom where they don't listen to you. But normally we go into the classroom hoping they will listen to you. Having a plan, a lesson plan, behavioral procedures to get them to listen to you. But if someone told me ahead of time, here's your lesson for today. And by the way, they're not going to listen to you. I would probably go the other way. But God told Isaiah, preach, even though they won't listen. And now Paul is experiencing much of the same. And he quotes Isaiah to say, I preached, but they're not listening. And so the gospel then will go to the Gentiles. Now, just as a clarification, this does not mean in any sense that the gospel from this point forward is closed to the Jewish people. It means that Paul, as an apostle, will turn his attention to the Gentiles. But later we find out that Paul will preach to whoever comes to hear him. And thank God for many, even today, Jewish people who come to faith in Christ. No one is without hope. And nor does this mean, in in verse 28, that all the Gentiles will listen, because I think we know that many Gentiles also don't listen. At the end of the day, brothers and sisters, none of us wants to listen. We all want to be stiff-necked and deaf in our ears. Why? Because to hear the gospel, though it is good news, is also to hear that there is a God to whom we must give an account. When we hear the gospel, it challenges us at our very core, Because we realize that we cannot save ourselves But we need the salvation of another When we hear the gospel It it totally obliterates any notion of self-righteousness Where we earn our way to heaven by doing good works Because we need an alien righteousness A righteousness apart from us A righteousness that is found in Christ That must be imputed to us by faith And we in our sins We don't want that We want to live life our way. We want to do things our way. And unless the Spirit of God were to convict us of sin and melt our stony hearts, we would never listen. And so if you're here this morning and you believe in Christ, all the glory goes to God, not you or me. Because left to our own devices, we would go the other way. But by the grace of God, we have been brought near to God by the power of His Spirit. Now, verse 30 and 31 is where the book of Acts ends. It says, he lived there two whole years at his own expense. Now, commentators are all divided on this. Why why is that the case? Remember, Paul went to Rome because he had to testify before Caesar. Um, One likely scenario is that there's just a lot of... Government red tape, just like today. There there are court cases, maybe you've been involved, or maybe you've heard of high profile court cases where the indictment comes in one year, then the trial is the next year, then there's a grand jury to, to, you know, and it takes like forever to actually get the actual trial to begin. And so in Paul's case, he probably just didn't have a court date scheduled for that long. So, what did Paul do with that time? Okay, I'm in Rome now. I'm imprisoned. Got a Roman soldier watching me, waiting for my my day to testify before Caesar. And what do you think Paul's going to do? Come on. He's going to preach the gospel. Look what it says in verse 30. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And thus ends the book of Acts. Some have suggested that the book of Acts ends sort of anticlimactically here. Kind of on a cliffhanger. We're like, well, what's next? And we, we don't know. We know that Paul eventually does die. There's speculation that he finally meets with Caesar. He is set free for a while, has a few more years. Then he gets arrested again. And then he dies under Nero, um he he knows he's at the end of his life when he writes the epistles to Timothy we don't know exactly what that time frame looks like but here's what we do know we know that he spent those 2 years doing what he lived and breathed which is preaching the gospel we know that because he preached the gospel despite how many people said no there were many who said yes and because the lord chose to send him to rome the, the world's capital this is the way that Jesus' prophecy in Acts 1 would be fulfilled. Because what we've been seeing, brothers and sisters, over the past two, three years, is everything he said about the gospel going forth in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and now the ends of the earth, are coming to pass. Because everything Jesus says is true. While Paul was in Rome... He wrote the letters of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. Paul was pretty productive as he was waiting on his court date. But if you want to know your history, I think it's, I mean, I am a history teacher, so maybe I'm biased. It's one thing to know American history, but brothers and sisters, you have a legacy. And this is your history. How the gospel came to your culture How the gospel came to you all finds its its root here, where Jesus told his disciples, You will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And what's striking about this is that Paul, who would be the one to bring the gospel to Rome, wasn't there in Acts chapter 1. He wasn't among the disciples to whom Jesus gave this commission originally. Paul was busy persecuting Christians. So God is the God of the unexpected. That God would use Paul, of all people, to bring the gospel to Rome. And because the gospel went to Rome, the most advanced city, bringing the most messages to the world, all of Europe, northern Africa, parts of Asia, and then eventually, years, years later, the new world, where we find ourselves here, would be covered with the gospel. And so I don't know exactly why the book of Acts just sort of abruptly ends here, but there are three things I can draw from Luke's open-ended conclusion. Number one, Christ's proclamation was realized. The gospel indeed went to the ends of the earth, all creatures, Jew and Gentile. Number two, the mission of the church cannot be stopped. If God has called his people to go to the ends of the earth and the gates of hell will not prevail... The gates of hell will not prevail. And thirdly, we must take up the mantle. The work has continued since then and must continue until Christ comes back. I think that's why there's one uh, church planting network you're probably familiar with, Acts 29. They're called Acts 29 because they feel that they're, they're fulfilling where the Bible left off in Acts 28. And so the application for us this morning, brothers and sisters, is this. Just as the gospel to all nations was the mission of the early church and Paul, so it must be our mission. And I know that's not rocket science. I know that we've said this and we've beat this drum before. But my, how we often deviate from this path. We're so locked into our day-to-day that we forget that God has you here as one piece of the puzzle to bring the gospel to every nation. God used this unexpected combination. Paul comes to Rome as a prisoner in chains on an Alexandrian ship headed by two pagan gods having been sent with a blessing from people in a small island of Malta after having been shipwrecked to be the one to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. And you say, but why would God allow Paul to arrive to Rome as a prisoner? How does that show God's power? Shouldn't he arrive as a a conqueror? But in God's wisdom, think about this. Paul would remain in Rome for two years preaching the gospel. How was Paul allowed to do this without fearing for his life? Because there was a Roman soldier next to him. That Roman soldier could be seen as an oppressor, but really, he was Paul's protector. Isn't that the wisdom of God? Have you thought about the things that God is doing in your life that you just want to get rid of that actually got put there for a reason? The Jews wanted to kill Paul, remember that? The reason Paul had to go back to Caesar and not Jerusalem is because on the way he would be killed. So Caesar, or or the governor, sends him to Caesar with an entourage of protectors. Truly, I tell you, the gates of hell cannot prevail against the mission of Christ. In this world. Because God owns everything. Christ is sovereign. He owns everything. He looks down at the Roman soldiers. He doesn't say, oh no, they're oppressing my people. Rather, he says, those Roman soldiers are mine. They work for me. He looks at a pagan ship with false gods on it. And he says, that ship is mine. And it sails for me. He looks at a small island of Malta that most people don't even know exists, and God says, that island is for me, and I will use it for my purposes. Do you see this now? It's not incidental. These are not just small details that Paul was brought to Rome with the aid of a pagan ship adorned with a pagan God sent by a pagan tribe protected by pagan soldiers. This is to show that every tribe, every culture remains under the sovereign authority of the only king, our Lord Jesus Christ. And from these very tribes and cultures, he is saving people for the glory of his name. No wisdom, no insight, no plan can succeed against the Lord. So two truths for you and me to take away from number one, obey the Lord. And number two, trust the Lord. Number one, obey the Lord, because the mission is ongoing. Acts ends here, giving us just sort of the beginning of how the gospel comes to the ends of the earth. And you and I, if we're believers in Christ, we must now go and continue to do the same thing. What Paul started, we continue. Consider the small thing. God may not necessarily call you to be a missionary somewhere else, but are you preaching the gospel? Am I preaching the gospel to the people that God put in our lives? You never know. You probably heard the story of D.L. Moody. This man was a powerful evangelist. May not agree with all of his theology, but the Lord certainly used him for many, many good things. And Moody came to faith because he wound up in the Sunday school of a man named Edward Kimball. And Edward Kimball worked up the courage to find Moody as a teenager in a Chicago shoe store and preach Christ to him. And history goes down. We don't know much about Edward Kimball, but we know the impact of D.L. Moody. Not all of us is going to be a D.L. Moody, but we can be an Edward Kimball. Just like Malta was such a small island, it had a huge impact for us today. So even the small things, the neighbor that nobody knows, the co-worker that nobody knows, God knows him. God knows her. Are we preaching the gospel to them? Secondly, trust the Lord because the mission will be accomplished. You know, just, just this week, I was um, online, and um, there's this really weird trend going around. I don't know if you've seen this. its um, I just read about it, because I want to make sure that I'm, I got this right. Um, apparently, men think about the Roman Empire. Has anyone seen that? If you're looking at me like you have no idea what I'm talking about. Okay, this is a big trend right now, where people are asking men, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? It's like kind of satirical, but kind of not, and... Anyway, you can find it online. It's very weird, but I can't help but think that regardless of what we think about the Roman Empire today, the Roman Empire is gone. The Roman Empire is a footnote in history. But there is one empire, there is one kingdom that will last forever and ever. And that's the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you and I have the opportunity... To be the, the news bearers of this kingdom. Are we taking that seriously? The mission will be accomplished. God will obstruct the devil's purpose. And as we close, if you'll just turn with me to Revelation 7. I want you to see this so that you can know the end from the beginning. You might feel like, look at how, how bad the world is. It's, it's never going to happen. But listen, Revelation is, is the end of all things. It tells us what's going to happen. The end of the book tells us that we win. And not only do we win, and I don't mean we we necessarily win in a political sense, by the way, but we win in that God has the final say, He has the victory in calling men and women from every tribe and tongue and nation as He amasses for Himself this great choir singing around the throne of the Lamb together in unison. The Word of God will come to pass. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 to 12. This is the Apostle John. This is the vision John has. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation... And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray.